This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. My pleasure to welcome you to this special evening that has two parts, during which we'll enjoy a lecture by world-renowned mountaineering legend John Roskelly, and then celebrate the establishment of the William Fix um, Mountaineering Collection at Whitworth University. We are delighted to have this valuable collection added to our library resources. We uh, also want to honor Bill and Harriet Fix, recognizing Spokane's long-standing history of mountaineering and the valued relationship that Bill and Harriet have with Whitworth University. You will hear more about uh, their relationship to the university at the reception in the library following this lecture. But the Fix's commitment to Whitworth has been long and constant. Uh, Bill Fix has been a Whitworth trustee since 1975 and became a life member in 2004. Together, Bill and Harriet have made many, many contributions to Whitworth including the establishment in 2013 of the William Fix Mountaineering Collection with an initial gift of around 250 works on mountaineering. Bill Fix is also a well-known and highly respected member of the Spokane Mountaineers, which just celebrated its 100th anniversary as an organization on September 19th. A member of the Spokane Mountaineers since 1956, Bill Fix uh, was its president twice and was the club librarian for decades. Bill has mentored several younger climbers, including John Ross Kelly. Mountaineering and Whitworth University share connections on several levels. Mountaineering is a great interest to many in our greater Spokane community, as well as a passion for many Whitworthians. The William Fix Mountaineering Collection is also an educational resource for courses such as the one taught by English professor John Pell. This collection offers rare materials with which students may interact while broadening their understanding of mountaineering. In addition, this collection of mountaineering works is unique in the Pacific Northwest and contains materials of special value to historians of the region. Many Christians find special spiritual value in mountaineering, connecting it to the biblical themes of ascent and of communion with God. As one past pope observed, in contact with the beauties of the mountains, in the face of spectacular grandeur of the peaks, and the fields of snow and the immense landscapes, a person enters into himself and discovers that the beauty of the universe shines not only in the framework of the exterior heavens, but also in that of the soul that allows itself to be enlightened. Again, thanks to all of you uh, for joining us this evening. I would now like to welcome Dr. Jim Edwards, the Emeritus Bruner Welch Professor of Theology at Whitworth, and an avid outdoorsman in his own right to introduce our speaker. Thank you, Carol. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to this two-part evening, a lecture by John Ross Kelly, followed by words from Bill Fix, 
as the inauguration of the book collection is done over in the library. You are warmly invited not only to this event, but also to the one ensuing in the library. The establishment of a collection of mountaineering literature is a fitting thing for an academic institution such as Whitworth because mountaineering has generated a quantity of literature that no other sport of which I am aware can claim. Mountaineering literature is, in fact, in my opinion, a unique genre of literature, not only because it is literature of high adventure, that's obvious, but equally because it has a reflective and often philosophical quality of sensitivity both to the natural world and also to human conflict and human nature. Mountaineering literature is read by far more people than simply hands-on mountaineers. And its appeal to the general reading public is due, in my judgment, to the fact that mountaineering is one of the great metaphors of human life, in which success in any important endeavor, and scaling a mountain would be such an endeavor, requires great dedication and sacrifice in the face of the uncertainty and the hardships that the mountain offers. But it also brings great joy when those uncertainties and hardships are finally overcome at the summit. We are especially honored this evening to welcome to the podium a great American mountaineer whose life and literature have made a particularly unique contribution to mountain climbing and to mountain literature. John Ross Kelly is a graduate of Washington State University. He has devoted his life to mountain climbing, to mountain writing, and to photojournalism. He has climbed four of the highest 8,000 meter peaks in the world, including both Mount Everest and K2, the first and the second highest mountains in the world. He has climbed along with Chris Kopsinski, who is here this evening, the infamous and difficult north face of the Eiger. Ross Kelly's record of climbing difficult alpine peaks and making first ascents of routes that have as yet been unclimbed was honored last year in 2014 by the coveted Piolet d'Or, the Golden Ice Axe Award, awarded to him by the Chamonix Guide Association for his lifetime achievement as a mountaineer. He is the first American climber, I believe, to receive this award. Ross Kelly is also an adventure author. He has written four books on mountaineering, most recently a book on paddling the Columbia River as well. His book, Last Days, exemplifies the kind of reflective 
adventure genre of which I have just spoken, and his book of short stories, Stories Off the Wall, a great title, is his favorite book because it highlights the kernels of experience that are enshrined in the act of climbing itself. Ross Kelly is more than an extreme globe trekker, however. He is married to Joyce and has been for 43 years. He has three children, Don, Jess, and Jordan. He has served for nine years as a Spokane County Commissioner and in many and various ways has worked for the preservation and improvement of the natural habitat of the Pacific Northwest. I am grateful for my friendship with John, not only because he is a great mountaineer, but because he is a man of great humility and modesty. Will you please welcome John Ross Kelly as he presents his lecture entitled, From Annapurna to the Seven Summits, Literature's Influence on Me and the Sport of Mountaineering. Testing? All right. I'm going to take over the big podium. Get rid of my jacket. Thank you, Jim, for that great introduction. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you, Carol. Good evening, everyone. I want to begin by reading you a passage in Storm and Sorrow in the High Pamirs by Bob Craig. The eight Russian women climbing Peak Lenin in the Pamirs are caught in a fierce storm on the summit, and one by one they are dying of hypothermia. This is the leader's transmission to Russian base camp. Elvira came on the air at 3.30 p.m. She spoke incoherently and then seemed to have lost track of time and referred to the illness of two of the women who had already died. The sound of the storm had momentarily eased, and someone beside her was audibly weeping. Then Elvira began to sob. They are all dead. What will happen to us? What will happen to the children? The two women who had youngsters had already died. It is not fair. We did everything right. Abulakov sat at the transmitter, cutting in, trying to console Shatieva. My dear, beautiful girl, you have been very brave, all of you. Please hold on. We are trying to reach you. At 8.30, the receiver registered a few clicks. We heard it earlier, and Elvira came on in a voice almost drained of passion. Now we are two, and now we will die. We are very sorry. We tried, but we could not. Please forgive us. We love you. Goodbye. And then there was only the wind. This is just one of the stories you will find in the new library. It is my honor today to thank Bill and Harriet Fix for their generous gift of the William C. Fix Mountaineering Library Collection, and to also celebrate Whitworth's enthusiasm in becoming a member of a small elite group 
of universities and libraries that cherish and promote first-person adventure literature. This library is not just shelves of books. It's a time machine for adventurers. Open one of these books and you are approaching the summit of Mount Everest with Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Open another and you're clinging on to the holds, small holds on the north face of the Eiger with Tony Kurtz in 1936 as he tries desperately to unravel a frozen rope with his teeth and his frostbitten hands and then lower himself to his rescuers, but he doesn't make it. He dies 30 feet above them. There is no end to the stories, and many will keep you awake at night like a boogeyman novel. Adventure literature begs you to ask yourself, can I do that? So many men and women, young and old, who have read these narratives, set off on their own journeys of personal discovery, and of course that includes me. It was on my second climb in 1965 that I met Bill Fix. I was 16. A large group of Spokane Mountaineers were in the Grand Tetons for their annual summer outing, and Bill and I and nine others were attempting Mount Moran. Mount, Mount Moran, Chicago Mountaineering Club's route right along the Black Dyke near the left. Bill and I teamed up and led the route together and had a great climb. Bill was a legend among us young climbers for his knowledge of the peaks and his speed on the climbs. He was, a, he was hard to keep up with. There are over 200 titles in the fixed collection and it includes biographies and autobiographies of such climbers as Ed Sir Edmund Hillary, Wanda Rutkowitz, Conrad Kane, Walter Bonatti. Of course, there are extreme alpine climbs and expedition narratives written about all the great peaks such as Everest, K2, Makalu, the Eiger, and others. These books are your passport to adventure and a window into climbers' minds. They represent a commitment to a belief that the impossible is possible, that men and women can endure insufferable hardships in the pursuit of personal challenge, that because it's there really is a reason to set forth and risk everything to achieve the summit of whatever goal you have in life. Several of the books in this library are why I started climbing on the 50th anniversary of the Spokane Mountaineer Club and still continue to climb 50 years later on the club's 100th anniversary of this year. Many other books influenced the mountains I sought to climb and the climbers I wanted to climb with. Sometime around 1960, while I was still in grade school, I read Annapurna by Maurice Herzog, a first-person narrative of the 1950 French expedition to climb an 8,000-meter peak. But it was most likely the photos on the front and back cover of the book that caught my attention. Triumph on the front, dis disbelief and despair on the back. Of course, at that age, I had no idea where Nepal was, what a Sherpa was, or what, why people would want to climb. But that didn't matter. Herzog's descriptions of traveling through Nepal, his relationships with his teammates, and he and Louis Lachnell's summit day and subsequent, subsequent tragic consequences sent me on a 50-year journey of adventure. Annapurna is in the library, but let me give you a snippet 
of why, what drew me to the sport years ago. Annapurna is about a French team that had selected two peaks for their objectives. Dalagiri, the seventh highest in the world, and Annapurna, the, the tenth. After weeks of exploration on both peaks, they finally concluded Dalagiri's approach was too long and dangerous. So they went after Annapurna, and they were on the north side. It was, very it was technically moderate route, but Annapurna's north side is very dangerous, very much avalanche prone. As the monsoon approached in early June, the French team was late getting to Nepal. Lacanal and Herzog made the final summit push. In the following passage, Lacanal and Herzog have reached the summit. Lacanal has no feeling in his feet and wants to go down immediately. But Herzog is in a world of his own. He wrote, Never had I felt happiness like this, so intense and yet so pure. That brown rock, the highest of them all, that ridge of ice, were these the goals of a lifetime, or were they rather the limits of man's pride? Well, what about going down? Lacanal shook me. What were his own feelings? Did he simply think he had finished another climb? As in the Alps, did he think one could just go down again like that with nothing more to it? Obviously, Herzog had a bit of cerebral edema. He wasn't quite thinking carefully. He lingers far too long and leaves the summit behind Lachnell, who is quickly disappearing down the slope. At the top of a couloir just below the summit, Herzog stops and takes off his pack. He takes off his gloves and fishes around in the pack, but he forgets what he wants to get in the pack. And as he's doing so, his gloves start to slide and roll and disappear down the slope. He forgets that he has a pair of socks in his packs that he could use for gloves. And then he fi finally decides he, to get his pack back on and run after Lachnell, who is quickly disappearing. They get back to Camp 5, their high camp, and fortunately for both men, two of their teammates have arrived at Camp 5 for their summit attempt. Both those guys were Lionel Touré and Gaston Rebuffat. They had climbed up to the camp and were now able to help Herzog and, and Lachanel. They are, they are appalled by the extent of the frostbite on both climbers. So they spend the rest of the night beating their hands and feet with cords to try to get the feeling back so that they can try to prevent more frostbite damage. Their descent from Camp 5 the next morning is nothing short of a nightmare. Intense cold, blinding snow squalls. They can't find Camp 4, and two of them are severely injured. They end up spending the night in a crevasse just 200 yards from Camp 4, the camp they couldn't find. As they left the crevasse the next morning, Herzog didn't think he could make it. Behind them, I was living in my own private dream. I knew the end was near, but it was the end that all mountaineers wish for, an end in keeping with their ruling passion. I was consciously grateful to the mountains for being so beautiful for me that day and as awed by their silence as if I had been in church. I told Therese, it's all over for me, go on. 
As their position so close to Camp 4 became known, because the skies had suddenly cleared that morning, they yelled, for two, and, yelled and two more of their teammates who had arrived at Camp 4 yelled back. And they were able to join. And along with two Sherpas, they made it down to Camp 2 and then back to Camp 1. But for the two summit climbers, the nightmare would continue. The team hastily... I haven't been moving. This is Annapurna. <laughs> the team hastily retreats from the mountain with Sherpas and porters carrying Lochnell and Herzog as the monsoon approached. At some point, as they neared the Indian plains, Herzog, having gone through painful injections and removal of some of his infected toes and fingers and superating tissue, gives up. He later wrote, There was no time for questions nor for regrets. I looked death straight in the face, besought it with all my strength. Then abruptly I had a vision of the life of men. Those who are leaving it forever are never alone. Resting against the mountain, which was watching over me, I discovered horizons I had never seen. There at my feet, on those vast plains, millions of beings were following a destiny they had not chosen. Herzog and Lachnell survived, but Lachnell loses most, many of his toes, and Herzog, of course, loses all of his toes and all of his fingers, save but a thumb joint. But later on, I talked to somebody who knew uh, Herzog, and he said that he watched uh, Herzog change film in his camera faster than most people could do so with ten fingers. So it didn't bother some, some people, and Maurice was one of them. Twenty-three years later, I faced my own Annapurna on Dalagiri, the peak the French decided had too difficult an approach. <clears throat> my experience was eerily similar to Herzog's and Lachnell's summit climb, from the uncomfortable night before the climb, knowing my feet may be frostbitten, the 40 to 50 mile an hour winds that we faced climbing to the summit, and the minus 20 degrees temperature that was and deep snow during the ascent. Like Lachnell, I too knew my feet were possibly frostbitten, and I also wanted to quit descent to the summit from the summit, but I would not leave my companions and race down to the high camp. The next day, after descending close to 7,000 feet to advance base camp from our Camp 4, I sat in one of our large eight-man tents with my feet in lukewarm water in an attempt to minimize the frostbite. One of the doctors on the team, Drummond Rennie, who was treating me, said, John, you have absolutely the longest toes I have ever seen. A half inch off here or there shouldn't make the, any difference. Like Herzog, I rode in a basket on the backs of porters for three days to the nearest village where I was able to ride a horse to the nearest airstrip, a luxury Herzog did not have in 1950. My desire to climb reached epic proportions in 1964 after reading Lionel Therese's Borders of the Impossible. Remember, Therese was on Annapurna. After reading Therese's account of his and Lachnell's 
second ascent of the Eiger North Face in 1947, I had to learn to climb. Chris Kopsinski and I climbed the same route in 1973, so I know exactly how Ture felt on some of the critical leads on that face. This passage in Ture's book sums up the feelings that all alpine climbers at one point or another come, up, come to grips with. After making the difficult Hinterstoiser Traverse, oops, I'm back again, they reach the first bivouac, the swallow's nest, the beginning of the real difficulties and dangerous terrain. Here's what he wrote. Suddenly, I was oppressed by our utter loneliness, the hostility of our surroundings, and the insanity of our actions appeared horrifyingly plain. There was still time to express my horror of these frozen rocks, to recall Lacanel to reason, to flee towards human warmth and life. But in fact, I said nothing. A mysterious force kept the words in, and I knew in my heart that it was too late for such thoughts. The die was cast. We must win through or die. That was a funny statement as I read that. Not funny, but unusual, because the swallow's nest is quite low down on the Eiger. I think they could have gone down by that point, but it was a good thought. Above the Traverse of the Gods, the Eiger's steepens into vertical gullies, avalanche chutes really, called exit cracks. Ture describes his lead into the final chimneys. No sooner had Lachnal reached my side than I was off, bridging so wide that at times it seemed I might pull a muscle. The rock was extremely compact and practically impossible to peg. Just, but just as I had almost run out of rope, I found a place where I could get a piton in an inch or so, and with this pitiful belay, Lachnel had to be content. After much begging, my dad gave up trying to interest me in fishing and enrolled me in the 1965 Spokane Mountaineers basic course when I turned 16. I soon met and teamed up with Kopsinski, who not only read the same climbing books I did and was just as eager to learn the sport, but had access to his dad's credit card and car. That was all we needed to create a lot of trouble and climb a few peaks in that order. During those early years, I spent a lot of time reading climbing journals, magazines, and books, which helped me focus on some climbs to do to test and improve my skills. One such climb was on Yosemite's El Capitan, the North American wall route first climbed in 1965. Royal Robbins, one of the greatest American rock climbers of our time, wrote that out and over the huge overhang known as the Cyclops Eye has the most spectacular lead in American climbing. After reading that description by Robbins in Ascent magazine, I had to experience it for myself. In September 1971, I was living in Yosemite for a few weeks and I hooked up with another Northwest climber, Mead Hargis. He and I tested each other on a few hard climbs and then jumped on the North American wall. We made an excellent team. The, the North American wall had been climbed five times at that point. Each climb had taken five to eight days. Mead and I climbed the North American wall in two and a half days. And yes, I got to lead the pitch out of the Cyclops' eye. 
After my success on Dalagiri, I was asked to join a team of 19 Americans in 1974 to climb in the Russian Pamirs. This was a gathering of over 160 climbers and from 12 different nations, and the primary objective was Peak Lenin, the second highest peak in Russia. We were urged to read Peak Red Peak by Malcolm Slessor, a Scot who wrote a witty yet telling tale of the joint 1962 British, Scottish, and Russian expedition to the highest peak in the range, Mount Communisma. In this passage from Red Peak, Slessor describes one of the all-Russian expeditions known as Spartak in 1962. The Spartak expedition, like so many of the Soviet expeditions that summer, were in for the annual competition to see who could do the finest route and who could make the longest and hardest traverse. Little did we realize how the Russian style of climbing would come to bear on the events that unfolded that summer, especially their liking for traverses, which we just do not recognize here in the United States. Slessor also made it clear in Red, Red Peak that the Brits and Russians did not get along during their climb of Mount Communisma. What he wrote in his book did not set, sit well with the Russian Mountaineering Federation. Twelve years later, their distrust for each other's countrymen was still evident. At the camp opening ceremony in 1974, all, all 160 climbers formed in groups behind their country's assigned flagpole. And one by one, a member of their team raised their country's flag, except the British. They raised a pair of women's underwear. The Russians didn't bat an eye, and the next team raised their flag as required. The underwear flew proudly throughout the day, but was replaced by the Union Jack by some unknown party that night. During our 30 days in the Pamirs, we had a number of earthquakes, massive avalanches, and deadly storms. Fifteen climbers died, including our own Gary Eulin, who was buried by an avalanche in his tent on Peak 19. And, of course, all eight members of the Russian women expedition trying to make the first all-female traverse of Peak Lenin, of which I read you their last transmission. This obsession with traverses was something Slessor addressed and had been quite critical of in Red Peak. Our expedition to the Pamirs was, is chronicled in Bob Craig's book, Storm and Sorrow in the High Premier. Nope, I'm not, I'm not doing my job here. That's peak 19. <laughs> and that's the Russian women's team on top of Mount Lenin. And then Storm and Sorrow. Our expedition is chronicled in Bob Craig's book, Storm and Sorrow in the High Premier. Craig was a member of the Peak 19 team, which was avalanched high on the face at 2 a.m. in the morning in a severe and intense snowstorm. I was also on that climb that, that day. Here Craig is buried in his tent under several feet of snow, expecting to die. He wrote, I, 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 had, I had reached the most despairing moment of that somber night, where I, I had really begun to doubt that the two Johns John, Mart and my, John Martin and me, had survived. And now there was little or no practical hope of getting out on my, on my own. 
I felt pressure suddenly against my feet. A muffled voice was calling, Gary, Bob, are you okay? And I thought, good Lord, we're going to get out. More digging, and I felt fresh air coming in along the right side of the sleeping bag. And I could hear more clearly John Roskelly yelling for us to answer. I could feel the frantic digging in the snow at the foot of the tent. What an incredible feeling of freedom, where there had been moments before so little hope. Americans wrote a number of expedition narratives in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that influenced a lot of climbers of those generations. There was Five Miles High by Robert Bates, the story of the 1954 American K2 expedition. Another was Americans on Everest by James Ullman, the official expedition chronicle of events for the 1963 American Everest expedition that put Jim Whitaker and Nawang Gambu on, on the summit. But perhaps the most widely read by climbers was The West Ridge by Thomas Hornbein. It is still a must read for climbers. The West Ridge chronicles the first ascent of the West Ridge of Everest and Hornbein's and Willie Unsold's climb to the top and descent. The West Ridge climb ranks as one of the top climbs in the world and still does. Hornbein here describes his, Unsold's, Barry Bishop's, and Lute Jersted's unplanned bivouac at 27,000 feet on the descent from Everest summit. This is what he wrote. Mostly there was nothing. We hung suspended in a timeless void. The wind died and there was silence. Even without wind, it was cold. Unsignaled, unembellished, the hours passed. Intense cold penetrated, carrying with it the realization that each of us was completely alone. Nothing Willie could do for me or I for him. No team now, just each of us imprisoned with his own discomfort, his own thoughts, his own will to survive. Hornbein escaped injury, although none of them had bottle oxygen that night. But unsold Bishop and Jersted all had several, a severe frostbite and lost toes and some fingers. The West Ridge is a magical book for its quotes, its pictures, and the story. These men were America's first climbing heroes. I could not even imagine when I started climbing that years later I would climb with Unsold on Nanda Devi, trek with Bishop in Bhutan, and meet Jerstead in a jungle camp in Nepal. Unsold was a co-leader on the Nanda Devi expedition in 1976, of which I was a team member. Our team Sorry, I get carried away. There's Everest, the West Ridge. If you can find that, buy it. In fact, years ago, the Sierra Club Books, um, just a side story here, Sierra Club Books warehouse burned down. And all these books were burned, and so they had to redo everything, and the originals were gone. So when you find an original, it's worth the, worth the price. And Willie Unsold was a co-leader on the Nanda Devi expedition in 1976, of which I was a team member. Our team of American and Indian climbers, both men and women, 
finally succeeded on a very difficult route up the northwest face. Three of us made the summit. On the second, second summit attempt, Willie Unsoul's daughter, Nanda Devi, who was named by her father after the mountain 22 years before, died at the high camp, most likely from a strangulated hernia of her bowel. Thus the name of my, of my first book, Nanda Devi, The Tragic Expedition. After a few years of climbing in Asia, many of the books that were published by American authors were about expeditions I had been on, such as Mountain of Storms, Storm and Sorrow in the High Premiers, Many People Come Looking Looking, a beautiful, well-written book by Galen Rowell, and The Last Step by Rick Ridgway. I find reading about me from someone else's perspective eye-opening. The author's point of view is so different at times from my own experience. There are times after reading some of these accounts, I wonder if I was on the same expedition. I remind myself of this every time I write a book now. To thousands of climbers, 1974 was an important year. Reinhold Messner, the greatest climber of our time, published his first book. He has become the most prolific writer in mountaineering, um, of mountaineering, all with 60 books at this point. I had the pleasure of interviewing Reinhold in Seattle in January, and I read 10 of his books to prepare. Reinhold is direct and introspective in his books as he is in his life. Here he writes about failure, which of course is something we all encounter. It is through failure that we experience our limitations. Failure is a more powerful experience than success. To fail well requires practice. Well, I've had plenty of practice. Reinhold not only wrote Reinhold not only wrote about his climbing, but also life experiences in general. He was a politician, a member of the European Parliament for a term, and expressed a strong opinion about his fellow politicians in his book, My Life at the Limit. The pompous blowhards who pretend to represent the interest of their voters, the lobbyists, or even Europe, but are really opportunists trading political offices for favors, and the mad egotistical scramble for list places for the next elections. I loathe all that. Pretty direct, I'd say. But perhaps the book that influenced me the most in the late 70s was Galen Rowell's In the Throne Room of the Mountain Gods. The photos of this book led me to climb three spectacular peaks in the Karakoram. Great Trango Tower, which our team of five climbed from the side you see here. Uli Biaho, directly up the wall in the photo. And a new route on the northeast ridge of K2 without using supplemental oxygen. That's what books do for you. You page through them and you find objectives. After our success on K2, Rick Ridgway wrote The Last Step, detailing our expedition which climbed the northeast ridge. It took us 67 days above base camp to finally climb that ridge and put four people on top. In the last step, Ridgway writes about an incident after returning to the high camp from the summit. He and I are in our little tent 
getting ready, and I'm cooking, trying to melt snow for water. Out of the tent, John screamed. I opened my eyes. Flames were everywhere, covering everything. My hair was burning. The tent walls were burning, and my sleeping bag was in flames. The stove had exploded. I had an instant flash of panic, of being burned alive, and then I felt the claustrophobic I felt the claustrophobia from not being able to breathe. Outside, I could see John already reaching through the gaping holes in the tent walls to save boots and climbing clothing. I pulled my bag out, still burning. It was nearly destroyed, and without thinking, I threw it down the slope. John and I turned to see the bag, still aflame, roll hundreds of feet down the abruzzi shoulder and disappear. We were at 26,000 feet at the time, after having struggled up to that point and climbed to the summit and down. So we looked over at Wickwire and Reichert, who were laying there watching us, and they realized that we were going to crowd into their little tent with them, <laughs> which we did, although I had to spend the night without a sleeping bag, because I gave mine to Ridgeway, because I burned his up. <laughs> There are so many great books in this library. I love the collection of short stories like those in Ascent, the picture books of incredible photographs like Raoul's Mountain Light, and of course the first-person accounts of other expeditions, like those written by Chris Bonington, Jim Wickwire, and Harold Tillman. But the final book I want to talk briefly about is Seven Summits. In my opinion, no other book has made such an impact in the sport of mountaineering in recent years than this one. Even John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, possibly one of the most widely read mountaineering books of all time, is a direct result of Seven Summits. Seven Summits is about two men's journey to be the first to climb the highest peak on each continent. Dick Bass, an overweight, out of shape, Texas oil and ranch multimillionaire, who developed Snowbird Ski Resort, and I love Dick, I do, was embarrassed in a staff meeting by one of his ski patrollers, Marty Hoey, who also happened to be a mountain guide in the summer. When he found out that she was a guide in the meeting, he asked her if she would guide him up Mount McKinley, kind of flippant, flippantly just saying that. Marty, who ate triathletes for breakfast on Mount Rainier, replied, Bass, your hot air won't get you up that mountain. Of course, he was embarrassed in front of his staff and annoyed, but the gauntlet had been thrown by this quiet, confident woman, and he decided to prove her wrong. Marty guided him up Mount McKinley, and with that success, he formed a partnership with Frank Wells, the president of Warner Brothers Studios, another wealthy 50-year-old to climb the seven summits. After four years of flying around the world and multiple attempts on Everest, Dick finally fulfilled his goal to climb the seven summits and also became the oldest person at the time to climb Everest. So why is this book so important? Bass destroyed a psychological ceiling that individual goals have limits. Everest was supposed to be only for super athletes with years of climbing experience. Bass proved to himself and many others there is no limit. Nothing is impossible.
To end tonight, I want to take us back to the beginning. Oops. <laughs> I will show you that. I'm sorry. I, 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 other, I don't think my, uh, my uh, yellow markers are showing up on certain things. But um, The red tent is the one I blew up. And the blue one is where all four of us stayed. And that's Dick. Who just passed away uh, in late July at the age of 85. To end tonight, I want to take us back to the beginning. Herzog's book, Annapurna. Herzog realizes their climb of Annapurna was a great step forward in the world of mountaineering. But like so many remarkable achievements, it, it, it was just the beginning. He wrote at the end of his book, Annapurna, to which we had gone empty-handed, was a treasure on which we should live the rest of our lives. With this realization, we turn the page. A new life begins. There are other Annapurnas in the lives of men. The William C. Fix Mountaineering Library is a treasure. Again, thank you, Bill and Harriet, for this gift to future generations. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you.